Would you please turn with me to your study outlines there in your program, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho at the Baptist Community Church and Purpose Church, uh, Kalispell in Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us today as well. Today we're finishing up our summer series called The Journey, which is based on Deuteronomy, even though today will not. We're going to use Deuteronomy as a launching pad. It's not going to be based on the book of Deuteronomy. Next Sunday, we're going to start a fall series. And let me just tell you, I believe our series, we're going to start next Sunday. After being summer in Deuteronomy, we thought we'd do something that's kind of connected to your life and maybe a bit more topical since we've been expository through the summer, chapter by chapter through Deuteronomy. I believe it's going to be the most helpful, practical life-changing series, fun series uh, that we have ever done. And I just can't wait for it. I think it's a great one to bring your friends to. I would encourage you to bring friends next Sunday. I think it's a great one uh, to bring your friends to as well. But today we're going to finish up by talking about unity on the journey. How to keep our church unified over the next 14 months or until November 3rd, 2020 which is the date of the next presidential election. Now, they say that friends should never talk about religion or politics. We're going to talk about both of them today. Uh, You all were so gracious three weeks ago when I preached on immigration. I went home after that thinking, I pastor the best church in America. You guys are so forgiving and kind to me. And when I make mistakes, you're, you're, you're such a blessing. You're so gracious. And I'm going to ask you for that again today. I ask you for your, gra- your grace. Uh, I'm going to keep things as balanced as, as I possibly can. Uh, but my, you know, my biases are bound to show through. And my imbalance is bound to show through. I have many blind spots. And my blind spots have blind spots. And so I'm just going to pray like I always do, uh, that anything that's not of Jesus, that's of Glenn, you'll forget about it by the time you get to your life group or by the time you get uh, to your car out in the parking lot. And whatever is of Jesus, that's what you're going to remember. Now, as I said, we're going to use Deuteronomy 34 as a jumping off point because we've just been reading verse by verse as a church family through the book of Deuteronomy. So uh, if you've been reading according to that schedule, you should have finished up by reading Deuteronomy 34 over the last couple of days. And basically what you see in that final chapter is the leadership of Israel is being transferred from Moses uh, over to uh, Joshua. Uh, And God just says, okay, no longer you, Moses. Now, Joshua, uh, it's up to you. The baton has been passed to you, as we talked about last Sunday. So that means no election season, no primaries. They didn't have any political conventions, no political ads, no election. uh, Just God saying, Moses, your term is over. Joshua, you're elected. Done. Just like that. How many of you are jealous of Israel the theocracy from 1400 uh, BC? What, what a wonderful thing would that would be. Uh, but we're in a democracy. Now, I got uh, criticism from the 830 service. We are not a democracy. We are a representative republic. So for all of you government teachers out there, there, okay, there. Uh, I, I said it right. Uh, we're, uh, uh, we, there I just go back to saying democracy. I'm not going to read it again. We're, we're in something close, whatever. We're, you know what we're in. And, um, and, and it's messy. It's messy, but it's way better than a dictatorship. Unless Jesus is the dictator. And that's coming soon. Anybody want to say amen to that? But in the meantime, 
We're going to ask the question, how can we vote wisely and stay unified with people who vote differently uh, from us? Uh, so that our church is not divided, and, and I would be so bold as to say that our church could set an example to the community, to the nation, as to how people can be unified in spite of their uh, differences. Now, first of all, we're going to talk about in politics, civility. And three weeks ago, we went uh, verse by verse through Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And in that passage, uh, Paul said uh, several principles. First of all, government is ordained by God. Uh, Paul says three different times, in just the first verse and a half, a version of this. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, uh, Paul here is not saying that God approves of every government's actions or every person who holds a political office. He's simply saying that the institution of government, the practice of recognizing and empowering civic leaders, is in keeping with his purposes. So as members of the body of Christ, uh, the church we're not to be anti-government. We recognize and respect the rightful uh, role government and politicians are meant to play in God's plan. Now, the second thing Paul said was that government exists uh, to promote human flourishing by promoting good and restraining evil. So Paul says, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. This, uh, this refers to law enforcement. This refers uh, to those in political office. This refers to those that are judges. Um, and so a government exists to promote our flourishing. Government serves God's purposes by creating conditions that allow its citizens to flourish. And so things like uh, freedom and opportunity and, 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 and safety and health and prosperity and justice and order and peace and protection, these are, are good things that God desires for every human being. Another thing, a principle from this passage, is government is worthy of our thoughtful cooperation. So if government serves God's purposes, it's our responsibility as, as citizens, part of our Christian responsibility following Christ, to cooperate and participate in ways that are available to us. So Paul gave them some examples, even though they were under uh, the Roman dictatorship of, of Nero, one of the most notorious leaders ever. But he still said, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, Paul couldn't imagine a situation where citizens could vote as we do today. But I'm sure he would have included, you know, registering to vote and, and voting as a way that we thoughtfully cooperate with government. Three weeks from today, out in the lobby, September 22nd, we're going to provide an opportunity to register to vote. And so we'd encourage you because we believe everybody that's of an age that we can vote as followers of Christ, we should be registered and, and we should vote. Now, Paul also couldn't have imagined a situation in which citizens could speak out and protest as freely as we do today. But again, I believe he would expect us to do that thoughtfully and with respect. And then finally, government and citizens are ultimately accountable to God. Our ultimate allegiance uh, is, is to God. Now, I think you'd agree with me. We have never seen Christians so at odds with each other as today. And churches so divided uh, by political controversy. I mean, we've been thrown off our mission as, as a church uh, by uh, division of politics. 
And so what I want to do uh, today, and, and the pastors of, of the church, we've been talking about this. And we've been saying, you know what, we don't just want to be reacting to things. We want to be proactive. And that's why, I mean, there'll be other messages like that over the next 14 months. But that's why we're doing it 14 months ahead, because we don't want to be reactive. We felt we were caught off guard and a bit reactive last time around. So we've been talking in our pastors' meetings, let's be proactive. Let's get, let's get out in, in front of this. And so I want to offer a way of thinking about politics in the church and, uh, today that I hope is going to be helpful. How to engage in politics. So let's call it uh, the rules of engagement. Rules of engagement. Three zones. There are three zones we're going to talk about. First are political convictions. Uh, there are responsibilities of government that we find in the Bible that I believe that all of us, if not almost all of us, if not all of us here at Purpose Church uh, would, uh, would believe and agree with. And the list that you see there in your program, if you see that list there, there's two on this page and then it goes on to another six on the back of, of the study outline. Uh, this is a list from what's called the National Association of Evangelicals, which is kind of a loose association of Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches across the country, uh, similar to Purpose Church. Now, we're reading and seeing a lot in the media about what evangelicals um, supposedly believe. Okay, there's a lot in the media about what we supposedly believe. But I just found it helpful to see what a group, a broad group of evangelical leaders and traditions, uh, what they identify as the things that we actually stand for politically. Not what we supposedly stand for, but what we actually uh, stand for politically. So here's a list in no particular order, in no particular order, and I'm just going to read what they say about this uh, from the NAE, and we'll just put the category up there, and I'm going to read. Religious freedom. Protecting religious freedom and liberty of conscience, Christians believe that every citizen should have the freedom to worship and to practice their faith without governmental control or interference. Uh, number two, sanctity of life. Safeguarding the nature and sanctity of human life, we believe that every human being bears the image of God and deserves the chance to live, including the unborn, the aged, the chronically or terminally ill, and those with disabilities. Uh, number three, justice and compassion. Seeking justice and compassion for the poor and the vulnerable, including those with less power, such as women, children, immigrants, refugees, minorities, prisoners, and victims of human trafficking. God has compassion for the needy and calls on those in power to be attentive and responsive to their needs. Number four, healthy families. Strengthening marriages, families, and children. The Bible and history tell us that the family is central to a productive society and human flourishing. So government has a responsibility to ensure that every household has access to adequate housing, health care, education, employment, and legal protection. Number five, human rights. Preserving human rights, including the rights to life, liberty, justice, security, and dignity. Number six, racial justice. Pursuing racial justice and reconciliation. God's vision is to reconcile all people, not only to himself, but to one another. And to overcome the divisions and discrimination that elevate one race over another. There is no favoritism with God. Number seven is peacemaking. Promoting just peace and restraining violence. God intends people and nations to live in harmony with one another. So good government promotes and preserves peace through just policies, skillful diplomacy, and military strength. Number eight is creation care. Caring for God's creation. 
God has entrusted human beings with the stewardship of this planet, so government's role is to enact laws and policies that ensure the earth's beauty and productivity for the generations to come. Now, that's a great list, isn't it? My goodness, what a, what a wonderful list. I, from talking to people here at Purpose Church, I would find that almost everybody agrees with the things I just read. So why do we vote so differently from each other? Okay, I have a couple of theories. Uh, two theories I want to share. One is mine. And one is from a friend named Brian Wilkerson, who's a friend of mine who pastors, uh, we were college buddies together, and he pastors a church almost identical to Purpose Church in Boston, Massachusetts. So, I mean, if you took Purpose Church and put it in Boston, Massachusetts, it would be Grace Chapel, where my friend uh, Brian pastors. And so I'm going to give you the West Coast theory, and then I'm going to share his East Coast theory, okay? Uh, here's, Here's my theory. Here, here's my theory as to why even if we agree on those convictions, we vote so differently. Remember I said at the beginning of the list, this is in no particular order. The National Association of Evangelicals has no particular order, but we do, all right? Each of us have an order of priority that we would put that in. As a matter of fact, when the sermon gets boring, this is what I would encourage you to do as a little side exercise. Uh, put, put in uh, these numbers and, and rank them one through eight the way it is there on, on your insert, your outline, and put them in the order that you would place them in. Put them in the order uh, that, that you would put. Now, if you really trust and, and, and get along with the friends that you go out to lunch with, share your list with each other. Uh, okay, so and if, even if you don't get along with them, that'll make it more interesting if you uh, share that list with each other. If you trust each other in your life group enough, share your particular ranking in your life group, and that'll, that'll provoke some interesting uh, discussions. And so to me, the reason we, we vote differently, even if we have similar convictions, is because we rank them in different order. For example, three weeks ago, we did the sermon on immigration. And I talked about it was a delicate balance between law and order and compassion. But I said, if, you're, if you t- emphasize the verses in Deuteronomy a little more on law and order, you'll end up in one place. And if you emphasize the verses in Deuteronomy on compassion, uh, you'll e- end up in a different place. And so depending on which ones you emphasize, uh, you will end up in a different place. And so that's true in how you rank these, how much weight you put on each one of them. I'll confess to you that I have one of those eight that's like huge for me. And, and I'm not saying I'm a single-issue voter, but I, I would say that one, one through eight, almost, not, not completely, but comes close to outweighing the other seven. And so, you know, sometimes you have one of them that just really, you know, one, maybe it's two or three. Maybe there's two or three that really hit your hot buttons, and so that's going to influence uh, the way that you come out because you rank them differently. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. My sister, Carol D. I absolutely love my sister. Here we are uh, from years ago. Doesn't that picture look like it was taken from the 1800s? I mean, I... I I mean, all of you, all of you that are young, you're like, man, well, that's when you were born, right, Pastor Glenn? Yeah, it was in the 1800s. That thing looks out of date, baby. Uh, here's one from a few years later. Looks a little bit more modern. And this is my, uh, this is my sister, Carol D. On the right, looks so much like my da- our daughter, uh, Leah. And then my older sister, Suzanne, she uh, died uh, pretty tragically about 22 years ago. So now it's just the two of us. Our parents are in heaven, so it's just the two of us. Um, and, and I love her so much. She's a fantastic mother. I mean, all of her kids uh, following Christ. 
a wonderful grandmother. All of her grandkids are, are following uh, Jesus. She's just my hero in so many ways. Her husband, Steve, I never had a brother. And so he was like my hero uh, growing up. He was chief legal counsel for Mass Mutual for about 30 years. And uh, they are just committed followers of Jesus. They're involved in ministries to the disadvantaged. They're involved in their church. They take kids into their home. I mean, my sister is just a wonderful person. And we believe very similarly about all of those eight issues. But she and I have canceled each other's presidential vote. Every election since Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. All right. Everyone since then. We, uh, uh, by the way, some of you that are old enough, doesn't that election seem quaint by today's standards? Aren't they nice? Aren't they sweet? Oh, my goodness. And I can still remember, this is kind of a lesson for the present as well. I can still remember, th- I was so passionate that I was like, if my person doesn't win, the nation's going to fall apart and the world's going to all fall apart. And it didn't. Okay, you know what? I think I've got time to do my history geek tangent. How many history geeks do we have? How many history geeks in the room? Come on, let me see you guys. Okay, um, just I'm, take, run with me for three or four minutes. The rest of you rank your eight. Okay, you can go through, and this is your, uh, this is your chance uh, uh, to rank your eight. Uh, you know, I'm going to talk out the other side of my mouth. This seems so sweet, but this is not the most tense time in American history. I mean, it's been messy in the past as well. Let me give you some examples. We've been talking a lot about Russian collusion for the last uh, couple of years. Uh, In the election of 1800, John Adams was accused of being a puppet of England, and Thomas Jefferson was accused of being a puppet of France. 1824 and 1828, Andrew Jackson beat John Quincy Adams in the popular vote. But Henry Clay, who was Speaker of the House, overruled the vote and uh, gave it to Adams in return for Adams naming him as Secretary of State. Now, the followers of Andrew Jackson were really ticked off by this. They called it, quote, the corrupt bargain. And 1828, four years later, was one of the nastiest elections in history. Adams' um, supporters attacked Jackson's marriage as being illegitimate because his wife's former divorce was not finalized before they got married, so they called her an adulteress. Uh, Jackson eventually won, but his wife died a month later due to the stress of the attacks. So Jackson blamed Adams for the rest of his life and never forgave him. 1912, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's, uh, after his eight years, his hand-picked successor was William Taft. But William Taft, during his four years, was not conservative enough. So Teddy Roosevelt took all of his people out of the convention, ran as a third candidate, dividing the vote, which put Woodrow Wilson in as president. Now, I have something in common with William Taft other than a weight problem. I have something uh, in addition to that uh, problem that I have with him, which is um, uh, that we both resent Teddy Roosevelt, but for different reasons. He resents him because he kept him from a second term. I resent him because I got the name Kermit as my middle name because of Teddy Roosevelt. He and his wife named their son Kermit. My grandparents, as recent immigrants to the United States, loved their country, loved their president, so they gave my dad the middle name Kermit, and my mom and dad thought best to give me that name as well. So I am named Kermit because of that guy right there. Okay. So, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Okay, we consider him this awesome guy. He was considered an idiot by many people uh, during his, his time in office. I mean, we just, he's beloved now. He's almost like perfect. 
Not back then. They called him a barbarian, a gorilla. The northern newspapers, not southern, the northern newspapers openly called for his assassination. He was called a coward, an idiot. The Gettysburg Address was called, quote, silly remarks and the most dull speech anyone could ever produce. When he was assassinated, it was called by many an act of God's providence, and these were his friends that were saying this. Can't even get into what they were saying in the South. This is what his friends were saying. When he got home, his wife would criticize him relentlessly. Uh, When he uh, triumphantly entered the southern capital of Richmond, Virginia, his wife went into such a rage that she slapped him in the face. So it's been rough in the past. We've survived it. Um, We've we've come through this kind of stuff uh, before. Now, the second zone is political values. First zone is political conviction. Second zone is political values. Um, We saw already in Romans chapter 13 words like honor and submit and cooperate and respect. And then in the letter that Paul wrote to the pastor, the young pastor who was mentoring Timothy, he tells us to pray for our government. And so the one word that summarizes all of these uh, values, these political values, is, is the word civility. Uh, that's the one word that summarizes. Donna Brazil writes, a government by, of, by, and for the people requires that people talk to people, that we can agree to disagree, but to do so in civility. Dana Perino writes, civility uh, is a choice. And so now we come to the third zone, which is political strategies. And so my theory as to why we vote differently, even though we have similar convictions, is we rank the issues differently. Uh, my friend Brian Wilkerson, his theory is that we have similar convictions, but we have different political uh, strategies. Um, Let's take uh, immigration and refugees, the one that we talked about uh, three weeks ago. And I'm just going to read what Brian says here. Some will argue that we should be more welcoming to people who are fleeing for their lives or seeking a better future. Others will argue that it's irresponsible to welcome more people than our system can absorb and without proper security measures. There's wisdom in both perspectives. And as individual believers, we are free to pursue and promote the strategies that we believe will be most effective or are in keeping, most in keeping with biblical principles. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll talk to each other about these things from time to time to challenge each other, to stretch each other, but we'll do it in a spirit of respect and cooperation and civility. And then Brian finishes with the quote that's there in your study outline. Uh, He says, our political convictions and political values are biblically determined. They're from Scripture. And and so they should be broadly affirmed. We as a church should be broadly affirming and unified around these things. Our political strategies are personally determined, and they should be broadly debated. So here's what you can expect politically uh, here at Purpose Church. And I'm just going to read this because I want to get it right, okay? We will pray for our leaders and, concern, and, and we will pray for concerns like these. We will teach on these, themes, on these themes when the scripture takes us there, like Deuteronomy took us to the subject of immigration. And we won't run away from hard topics. We'll encourage you uh, to participate as fully as you're able to in civic life, uh, to vote, to pay your taxes, even to protest or run for office if you feel so led. But we will do all these things from a thoughtful, biblically informed, nonpartisan perspectives. Here's what we won't do. We won't tell you how to vote. 
We won't endorse a political candidate, party, or platform. We won't assume that everyone in our life group sees things the same way that we do. We won't rant on social media. We won't pass judgment on each other or walk out on each other over political strategies or perspectives. And we won't get yanked around or drawn off course by every political firestorm that comes along. And we won't ever forget that our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God and that our mission is to proclaim the good news of Christ in word and deed and to make more disciples for him. The solutions to this world's problems are spiritual. They are found in Jesus Christ. And that is why our vision is everyone everywhere following Jesus. That's what you will find here. Now, that's why I think it's wonderful that it just worked out that we're sharing communion, the Lord's Supper today. Uh, and most of you have already received it, but at the end of the service, as we have some closing worship, if you need to get a chance to do it, I encourage you to do it. Because this reminds us of who we are and, and what, we're, what we're all about. Now, just a couple of things that I want to uh, finish with. Uh, first of all, it's all about the relationship. Uh, just two principles I want to talk about. Uh, it's all about the relationship. And I've shared this with you all before. Um, I don't know if, how many of you have seen the movie Remember the Titans. And, and that just, man, that just reminded me so much of my high school days because that true story happened in Virginia uh, during the exact time I was in high school. And it was just in the years after integration, what we call post-segregation, after you had, in Virginia, you had black, in the South, you had black schools and white schools. And in the years, I went to high school in the years right after they had integrated with each other in what we call desegregation. And that, that movie is just like, oh man, and I knew T.C. Williams. It's about T.C. Williams, a school in Northern Virginia. I went to high school in Virginia and Southern Virginia. And uh, we knew T.C. Williams. Um, I would run against them. If you got to the state level, they were a powerhouse at the state level, and so I was running against many of their runners uh, when you got to the state level. And so I've told you a little bit of the story of, of my high school days. Here are the two high schools back then. Uh, the one on the right, this was the, uh, uh, the black high school. The one on the left was the white high school. And so they had integrated with each other. And so by the time I came to school, uh, in, uh, black, blacks and whites, this is where I went to junior high, and this is where blacks and whites together uh, went, to, went to high school. And I can remember our, clo our school being closed because of racial tension. Uh, there was violence and, and killing that happened in the high school in, in, in the next town. And uh, I want you to know the um, negative thing about me. I am terrible at keeping up with friends from my past. I love friends that I'm currently with. I forget about people when they're from the past. And I'm just terrible about keeping Some of you are so good about keeping up with friends from the past. I'm not. The only two friends I keep up with high school are there's just two people, and they both go to my home church in Virginia. So that's why I see them when I go back to my home church. And so a few months ago, um, the first time in 45 years, a friend of mine, a good friend from high school, he, he contacts my assistant, Tina. And he and his wife wanted to set up kind of a surprise to say, you know, you know Glenn, here's a voice from your past kind of thing. And so I get on, on the phone, and it was uh, just one of my closest friends from that time, Gary Reese. And he now lives in Atlanta, Georgia. And I want to tell you, during high school, we came from completely Completely different backgrounds, completely different backgrounds. 
Um, uh, he was the star of the basketball team. I was the worst player on the basketball team. I mean, literally, I scored two points in 18 games. <laughs> you do the math on that one, all right? So he was a, he was a sprinter. I was a, 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 a distance guy. I, to be very frank, came from a background of privilege. He, uh, not, not so much. So we came from completely different backgrounds. But we formed this friendship during high school that just, like, changed both of our lives. I remember rooming together on a school trip and debating politics until midnight. And it got heated sometimes, I will tell you. We were very competitive with each other. We ran against each other for student body president. And yet our competition with each other and our disagreements on things, it just seemed to deepen our friendship. And so just a couple of days ago, on Friday, I pulled out a yearbook to get the picture to show to you guys. And, and I hadn't really read carefully what he had written in my yearbook. That's another bad thing about me, okay? And so I, I think I'd read it when he wrote it, but, you know, 45 years, I hadn't really looked back. Or if I'd look back on it, this part I hadn't really paid attention to. So I look back at what he wrote in my high school yearbook 45 years ago, and he wrote a lot, like half a page. But this is the part that just I'd never paid attention to before. Here, here's what Gary wrote to me. He says, I never thought I could get close to a white person, but you've shown me the merit of judging a man by his character and not his color. More than anything else, you've shown me that there is a God and that he's great, and I will believe in him. And then a few weeks ago, uh, another friend I hadn't talked to in 45 years, she calls the front desk at church and says, is this the Glenn Gunderson from Prince George High School? Is this, is this the right one? It was. And, uh, and her name is Joyce Delane. And she was so excited because she wanted to tell me that she was going to seminary in her 60s. She was starting seminary in her 60s. And she reminded me of something I hadn't thought of for a long time, that uh, we had a Bible study. I had opened up our home and had a Bible study that any of this before we had small groups in, 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 in high school ministry. And just opened up my home for any of the high school students at my school to come over and just read verse by verse through the book of Matthew. That's all we did. We just got together and read through and discussed uh, the book of, of, of Matthew. And she reminded me of that. And so after I finished talking to her and thinking back to the conversation with Gary and the great time we had reminiscing about high school, I asked myself the question, um, what brought us together through those tumultuous, even violent times? And the answer is this. It was Jesus. It was Jesus that brought us together. And this is not a message on racial reconciliation, but I think there's a lot of parallels between racial reconciliation and political reconciliation. I, th I think they're similar. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. The main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. Uh, Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think if Paul were writing today, he'd say there's neither Democrat nor Republican, neither liberal nor conservative, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul wrote to the group of followers of Jesus in, in the town of Ephesus, what is today the nation of Turkey. And he writes to them, for he, Jesus himself, 
is our peace. That's what we remind ourselves when we share the Lord's Supper together. He's our peace. He brings people together. People of all different backgrounds come together around the table, the Lord's Supper of Jesus Christ, because he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Now, in context, he's talking about Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. But I think he means any two groups. He can make any two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, the last thing I want to share about is to personalize the politician. Personalize the politician. How many of you have ever had a politician that annoyed you? In, in, anybody? Say that okay, I am. Here's what I personally have found ha- helpful is to read up on them a little bit. Now, I'm not asking you to read a whole biography. That would be like torture uh, to do that. I wouldn't do it myself, so I'm not asking you to do that, all right? But read Wikipedia on them. Just read up on them a little bit. I had a politician recently that uh, irritated me a bit, and so I read up on them, and it was an inspirational story. They had grown up in such poverty and overcome so many challenges. I got tears in my eyes as, 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 as I read about that person. So I want to close with these two examples of that. And I just want to warn you that the first example I use, half of you are going to cheer and the other half are going to be annoyed. But then we're going to switch and we're going to annoy the people that were cheering and we're going to cheer up the people who were uh, annoyed. So one presidential candidate from, from each party. Now I am not saying that you vote for someone because they're nice, okay? I'm not saying that. Their character and their policies are more important uh, than being nice. For for example, historians tell us that Adolf Hitler, uh, when you were in person with him, was fairly polite and nice. And and contrary, Churchill, when you were with him, was kind of bombastic and crude. But I think we'd all agree we should vote for Churchill over Hitler. I mean, there's one thing we can agree on, right? I mean, that that one, I, I finally achieved my purpose. We have gotten unity on that one. So let me give you an example, just two examples to personalize the politician, and and, and then we're going to close with some worship. Um, Our daughter, Abby, uh, just started um, working this past summer for Dr. Ben Carson, and he ran for president uh, three years ago. Some of you may remember him. He's now secretary of HUD, a housing and urban development, uh, seeking to get affordable housing for people uh, across America. But what he's most famous for is performing uh, the only successful separation of twins joined at the back of the head. He's the only man, only surgeon in history that has successfully separated twins that were born uh, with their back of their heads conjoined with each other with just like sharing one, one brain. And he's the only one that successfully uh, separated them. He's also famous for being the first neurological surgical procedure on a baby in the womb and for his new procedures to treat brain tumors and control seizures. And so our daughter, Abby, is now his director of legislative affairs. That is, Abby's the liaison between Congress, House of Representatives in the Senate, and the liaison between Congress and the, and the HUD department. And Abby said that what everybody says about Ben Carson is when he walks in the room, he's the smartest man in the room, the smartest person in the room, and he's the nicest person in the room. Smartest person in the room, nicest person in the room. Uh, Abby was prepping him to give testimony before the Senate Banking Committee uh, the other day. And she said, Dad, he's just so humble. He's just so humble. 
And so he's a politician, but he's still a person. Still a person. He's a politician, but he's a person. And then, now we'll switch over to the other uh, side of the aisle. Senator Kamala Harris. She's the only presidential candidate, uh, to my knowledge, who has ever been to our church. A few years ago, she was at a funeral event uh, with me here at our church when she was attorney general for California. And, uh, and uh, she uh, sat next to me at the service. Remember, uh, one of the things that we really appreciate as a church is she established an agency in California uh, to address foster care, juvenile justice, school truancy, and childhood trauma. So with the chosen ministry that you saw on video announcements that Pastor Tomiko is starting, uh, that was all part of the first move in, in, in that direction. And so she sat next to me right on this platform. We sat together here during that service. And and she was so nice, and she was so smart. Just like Ben Carson, she was the smartest person in the room, and she was the nicest person in the room. She was interested in our church and asking questions about our church. She's a politician, but she's still a person. Are we still friends? Okay, okay. 